This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university in San Francisco. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Hey guys. Hi. Why don't we introduce ourselves a little bit more? <laughs> yeah. Why we, how we got to be working on this. Yeah, so um, I cover the intersection of food and technology. Um, I have been covering the sector for about five years. For the last nine months to a year, I've been working on a book. It will be out this fall, and it's called Technically Food. And um, I'm really interested in making sure that the changes that are coming to our food system are out in the public. Yeah, I've been... Um I've been researching food and agriculture politics for over 20 years now, and um, for a long time was kind of a thorn in the side of the alternative food movement, organics and local food, doing friendly critiques. And um, several years ago, I decided I'd had enough of that, and I really wanted to look elsewhere, but with uh, to other sectors in food and agriculture. And um, I've been working on the strawberry industry for some time, and then this came along. I was just fascinated by um, the tech sector's interest in food and agriculture, because for one reason, and as food and agriculture have been no- notoriously un- non-profit, not profitable. And to see this new industry say, we're going to help make farmers profitable, we're going to help make, drive profits, I was fascinated by this. There's many things that have fascinated me about this. So um, basically, I went and got a National Science Foundation grant and to do a multi-campus uh, collaborative project to research the tech sector is interested in food and agriculture, and we're interested in how how the sector defines the problems it wants to solve, how the sector um, imagines it's public, how the sector expects to make profits. We have a lot of different questions. We'll, some of it we'll be covering tonight. So, And it's actually yeah. how I yeah. came to Julie, which yeah. was to, yeah. to see if she wanted to have this conversation with me, yeah. which was I was digging into yeah. all the different companies and how much money was getting invested. Um, and several different people suggested I chat with Julie. And um, here we are today. Yeah. Um, so, Julie, tell me what you're hopeful about. Well, I'm going to ask you what you're hopeful about, because I think you're a little bit more hopeful than I am. <laughs> Yeah. So the things that make me hopeful are that there are such a diversity to ideas and innovation. And um, like we're, we're very out of the box today, whereas a food system of old was, you know, cor- big corporations kind of running things the way they ran them. And now we have different ideas, different voices and the possibility that things can happen within the food system where we didn't have it before. Um, one example might be that when Jeff Bezos was shopping Amazon initially, he had just a short couple-page PowerPoint to try to get investment. And <clears throat> he got investment, and we know where he is today. That same, that same idea, that same notion that you could just have like a basic, the very ba- bare bones of an idea and get it to become a food company is possible. So one of the companies in my book is Clara Foods, and they make egg whites using microbial fermentation. And but their their initial idea was came kind of came out of like nowhere and the three founders came together they met they did a short powerpoint and then launched the company and 5 years later you know they're sort of well on their way to making this happen so egg whites that do not come from a chicken that come from microbial fermentation that could become products in the future um so the fact that that what could what used to only happen in technology is now happening in food i think is very exciting there's a flip side to that, and we'll get to that later. But um, that's initially what I am so excited about is that there are these processes that we have in science that are being tapped to and being brought into the food system. Um, the technology that Clara is using is based on recombinant DNA, um, taking DNA code from one organism and putting it into a host, then the host will. Um, kind of spit that out in, through fermentation. And, and that's how insulin is created. And I'm a type 1 diabetic, and I, I take insulin, and I, my life depends on it. So it's this funny um, intersection of 
um, a technology and science that I need that is now being applied to food, and it's pretty fascinating. So, Julie, <laughs> let's start so, with the yeah, hopeful. Yeah, you know, I'm going to start with the hopeful. I mean, I, you know, I've been studying and teaching both big food and small food for, you know, a good 20 years now. And I'm fascinated by and somewhat hopeful that um, those within the food sector and outside the food sector are really recognizing the many fold and interconnected problems with the way we produce food um, from the use of um, highly toxic pesticides to the release of greenhouse gas emissions to um, poor animal welfare in livestock production to soil depletion. I mean, there's so many concerns that I'm sure many of you are aware of that um, about how we produce food. And so I'm, I'm, I am happy and vaguely optimistic, not so optimistic, but I think it's at least worth thinking about this new interest in food and, and, and recognize and, and the way in which the sector, the techies are kind of putting forward these bigger grand challenges in the conversation. Um, so that, that's the stuff they invoke, the, the grand challenges of the food system, like greenhouse gas emissions, like animal welfare, et cetera. I'm not, I mean, for the most part, I think that those problems in the food system cannot be addressed with technology. I think technology is more cause of the problem than is the solution of the problem. I think that mainly has to be addressed through policy solutions. But I mean, it's it's good to bring this stuff to the attention and, and you know maybe make the public that much more um, aware of what the kind of behemoth of the food system that we're facing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna. I have a few questions, but I think I'm yeah. gonna wait for those. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so why don't we talk about? We'll just go through a couple of different technologies that are percolating that are. Um, happening in the system today. I think one that everyone knows about is the plant-based meat analogs that are making it into you know, Burger King, White Castle, McDonald's. Um, and it's, it's an example of uh, a, a, a new form of foods that we've had for a long time. These foods of these, these um, you know, veggie burgers have been around forever, but it was, it's, it's science that has made them a little bit better, but actually the the machinery, the factories that are producing it are still the same. So there, it's it's sort of an example of um, how far we've come. But then we're still we're still dependent on an old food system, um, and it, things like extruders, which is an old fashioned manufacturing equipment that makes cereal and pet food. That is what what also can make plant based burgers delicious. Well, plant based burgers are so interesting, right? Because um, like you just said, we've had plant-based burgers for a long time. I mean, many of us grew up with soy burgers or, or I, let me see, we had walnut rice something burgers way mm -hmm. back when, because my father, by the way, was a health food freak before everybody else was. It explains a lot um, about me. Um, so, um, but this is like, it's treated as novel, and but the novelty is the degree of processing and the degree of trying to, to simulate what a real burger tastes like. Um, but it's an old, it's, it's an old thing. I mean, it, it's, it's very, it's very old. It started with the Adventists who, yeah, yeah. who like, which is like the Kellogg's who actually own yeah. Morningstar is one of the most, um, successful lines and it's, yeah. it still exists. And, but it started in, yeah. um, you know, a hundred years ago and, um, like McDonald's has tried to, to launch veggie burgers many times, but I think it's, it's also that the society is ready to embrace plants and, um, now, so McDonald's is still testing the waters, but everybody's, everybody's like even nutri I talked to nutritionists who are going to big uh, Burger King and getting the Whopper and saying it's great. Um, but it's, it's uh, the burgers showing both sides of the fence, which is that um, they're so successful, but now we're starting to look at it as over-processed and fast food. Super over-processed. And, um, you know, some people are you know, there's obviously lots of different reasons that people are embracing plant-based diets. Some of them has to do with greenhouse gas emissions. Some of it has to do with um, animal cruelty. Some of it has to do with health. Um, and so a plant-based burger addresses one of those. It, it addresses animal welfare. I mean, it, 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 to some extent, we could talk about what happens to the existing livestock, but that's a much more complicated question. But if, if the if the reason to go to a plant-based diet is for health, I mean, these things are super highly processed. 
And um, and also, I think one of the things about the plant-based foods is they're based on they're, they draw they use soy and they use peas, um, increasingly peas because soy has gotten such a bad rap because soy is grown with um, glyphosate, you know, Roundup. And um, now, so now it's peas, but you know, the question is where are all these peas gonna come from? I mean, they don't appear out of thin air. So to make these burgers, even though you're gonna ex extrude them into pea isolate, you're not even having mushed up peas, but it's gonna come from somewhere and, and probably grown under highly toxic conditions to have those mass produced peas and soy for the burgers. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> what you haven't brought up, which is that a lot of uh, peas are grown in North America. I know that Beyond Meat uses North American um, produced, uh, grown peas, but then it's also shipped to China and it's fractionated into yeah. um, protein, starch, and fiber. And the starch, the Chinese use for noodles. Now I'm curious, I've, I've been sort of trying to find out if um, the supply chain is being disrupted at all because of what's going on with the coronavirus. But, you know, we're, we're it's a very global system. So you're Impossible Burger has, you know, 15 plus ingredients that are come from around the world. Um, and they all lean heavily on coconut fat, which is, I think, eventually going to we're going to get into a palm oil discussion. But with coconut, um, which is that we're going to like, you know, tropical countries that are growing coconuts and we're, you know, kind of taking over. Right. As soon as something becomes big. Right. When I saw matcha hit uh, Starbucks, I became worried about tea. <laughs> right. Um, well, and it so, happened with quinoa many years ago. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> this like globalization of our food and that everything is now I, I actually think our food is becoming more and more ingredient ingredients only, not a whole. And those ingredients come from everywhere. Um, and the supply chain is going to be very complex for everything. Um, Impossible was running out for a while. Beyond had to quickly scale up and we're actually mostly able to keep up. Um, I know that Impossible signed an agreement with other people to manufacture their burgers, which brings um, further complexity. So, um, and because until recently Impossible wasn't at the market, but I wondered if anybody knew where their burgers were coming from and did we care? We had we'd finally gotten to the point where people started to care where their animal meat was from, you know, sometimes to the Portlandia effect, but <laughs> we cared where it was from. And now people don't seem to care or I'm not, it's a question I have is whether, whether consumers care about where their food is coming from um, when it's now become very like made in China, um, which is that you just don't know. I just, yeah, the, the, the supply chain things of all these things are, are a really important part of the discussion that's fairly invisible. And um, I, I don't want to, we were going to talk about vertical farming hopefully in a little bit, but um, one of the um, one of the things that actually got me into this project was my strawberry project and strawberry growers are really um, dealing with in, um, intense soil disease. And so they're, some of them are moving into growing in soilless substrate, um, and the substrate they use is peat moss or, or, or coconut coir. And so the question is, where's all this coconut coir going to come from? And then the other thing is they're, they are, when they're trying to substitute for fumigation, which is the problem and the problem I've been, I talk about in my book, they're, um, some of them are, are doing this process called anaerobic soil disinfestation, where they flood the fields with um, water and some sort of... Um, uh, some sort of, um, sorry, um, fertilizer? not fertilizer. No, it's a, um, um, ah, I'm just, it, it, uh, I'm just spacing out on the term anyway, but they're using like hold rice brand. So, so a lot of methods that seem to seem to, um, create better substitutes, but they're substituting from somewhere else and, and possibly displacing or disrupting agricultures elsewhere or, or possibly grown under, highly toxic conditions as in the case of, of soy or peas. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I know that so most of the crops of soy crops around the country are GMO, um, which means that they're generally glyphosate re 
dependent. A lot of people point to have not the pea crop is isn't GMO. Um, GMOs only exist in the lab for peas. Um, but I'm not I'm not quite certain that it's also glyphosate dependent. Um, it could we don't know, but, but it could if well it's be. mass, right? If it's yeah. mass, that's the question. So you know we've lost sort of the small and localized that we know. But let's talk about let's jump from plant based meat analogs, which are already doing well, and I think um, the public has seems to say we like it. But let's talk about cell based meats, cultured meats, um, which is that. Um, cells are taken, a biopsy is taken from a cow or from an animal. It could also be taken from an egg if it was chicken. And then it's grown in a medium in the labs. And then eventually it's taken into uh, bioreactors, into fermentation tanks and grown at scale. No one's at scale yet, but lots of companies are trying, testing it and making it for people to try. Um, but it's not out there yet in the wild. Um, so let's in talk the about wild. Cell-based <laughs> yeah. um, meat in the wild. I love that. that yeah. That'd be a great movie. <laughs> yeah. So, Julie, what do you what do you think of this craziness? Well, <laughs> it's it's crazy. I mean, it's I mean, one question I have for cell-based meat is what is is will any of it really ever ha- come to fruition? Because it's so far it's extraordinary, stor- extraordinarily expensive to do this. Um. um so, you know, one very candid person from a company said to me at one a conference I was at that it would take a, a bioreactor the size of a whale to grow one hamburger to feed, to feed everybody in San Francisco one hamburger a week. So that, you know, that's a lot, that would take a lot of bioreactors. I mean, this, one of the conceits of cellular meat is that you can create something from nothing, that you can take this biopsy of an animal and it does come from real animal stem cells and just because it's biological can just grow but it takes this extraordinary infrastructure of the bioreactors of the of the temperature control of the electricity well, etc the, the inputs of the media that it's yeah. initially grown in to, to get right. it to grow is is you need um signals chemical signals that yeah. happen inside a cow at the moment or inside my body at the moment that you need hormones you need things like insulin you need um and that so this this petri dish that's growing meat is going to need all of the inputs that a cow or a human or a chicken or a duck are going to need and at the moment these companies are frantically trying to come up with an inexpensive way to to supply that sort of that really integral need and that's again it's going to be another example where multiple ingredients multiple inputs are going to be needed and they're going to be coming from around the world um because they're not just like, you know, and they and they also, they're not out in the field. It's also this from. question that it's easier to make hamburger meat or sausage meat, but it, to make like steak like meat because they all very much want to imitate a steak. Yeah, right. And then sure. it requires this. They, they, how do you do that? So you want to create some sort of scaffolding. So they're looking at biomaterials to scaffold it. But there's also all these questions about um, how it replaces like a cow, a cow that feeds on grass and metabolizes things and creates amino acids. It's not clear that, I mean, the way it's presented is if these, these are, comp- it's meat without the, without the animal. It's, it's, the, it's an I- identical thing without the animal, but indeed um, very different nutrient profile because animals take up nutrients from their feed. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's a, it's a big question. I, yeah. I don't, um, we we don't have the answers, and um, I don't think the companies have the answers yet. But it's um, how it's happening, how they're. I know that um, Memphis Meats, which is one of the sort of front runners, and uh, is just in Berkeley. There, I know they've found a manufacturing facility and plan to be like going to scale soon. Um, I've heard that they've gotten their medium prices really low. Um, initially, these companies were using blood from cows' fetuses to to grow it. Um, to, to as because it's it's what you need is what's in the cow right and so to depart from the animal is becoming really is very complex and it's why they're making such progress but I think it's going to take time before they get they get anywhere um, yeah I mean and that's I think one of the things that really strikes me about that technology in particular um, in in terms of how this tech sector functions because there's an array of products coming out from that what are called the moonshot technologies we might talk a little bit about protein from thin air from co2 that's even more moonshotty than cellular meat to really mundane things like protein bars from you know that's not even really tech it's just a new 
version of a, a protein algae bar. or soy or algae or something every, like that. So people, there's a range. Yeah. Excuse me. There's a big range of technologies, and sometimes I think these kind of more moonshot technologies are just serving the purpose of creating the hype around the sector when the stuff that's really going to get adopted, particularly the stuff that's sold for farmers, is much more mundane. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So. Um, in addition, so what's what, what I find to be really fascinating is that this this technology of recombinant DNA of like finding a host that you can put um, code into to make something else is happening in dairy. So there's company making um, casein and whey. Those are the two primary proteins in <laughs> cow's milk that produces cheese and ice cream and yogurt. So they're making it um, in fermentation tanks in bio. They're, we, they're called bioreactors, sort of in science, um, and no one's done this before, but we've had the technology for a long time. And it's just that we had we we had the supply chain. We had cows. We had land. I mean, the United States is vast and we had plenty of arable land. So these companies are coming and saying, well, we're going to do it differently because we want to save the animals and we want to save the planet. Um, but they're going to be dependent on crops. They're going to be dependent on sugar. Um, there's a lot of dependencies that are very similar from uh, traditional farming to um, taking it into manufacturing plants. Um, and as we've been talking about processed foods, as, as like scientists have been studying the diets of people on whole foods versus processed, lightly processed versus ultra processed, um, what we're seeing is that what, what we know, a whole foods diet is the best for us. And so it's, it's, it's real challenging because it's exciting and it's, it's, it's interesting and it's getting a lot of money, but it also sort of taking us a little bit away from the things that we have figured out by now are good for us. <laughs> we'll do questions we'll do at the questions. end. <laughs> I think there's um, some somebody who wrote about this a while ago, Jake Metcalf also pointed out that one of the things about what he called bat meat, it was called bat meat, now, then now it's gotten this more sanitized name of cellular meat. It's, there, there's been a lot of contestation over what it shall be called. Oh, yes. There's clean meat. It's been called clean meat. It's been called, well, it started as in vitro. Yeah. Then it went to cultured. Then it went to clean. Schmeat. Oh, I never meat heard meat. I never heard that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Then it, so from cultured, it went to yeah. um, clean meat. And then it's sort of back to cell based. Cellular meat, and, right. Yeah. But, but it does kind of imagine this world without mess. And I think that's what undergirds a lot of these technologies is like we want to minimize the resources in and we want to um, minimize the waste out. So it's, it's, it is a lot of it is on it. There's, there's this idea that you could do something from nothing and, or something from such abundance that people wouldn't miss it. And, and that there's no waste. And so with, with, with this meat, it's also interesting, this idea that you can have meat without an animal. Um, but like, as if you can avoid the mess, messiness of the world. Yeah. Right. And then they have to basically create that, that shell of the animal right. that gives, gives the cell based meat all the inputs. Mm -hmm. Um, which sounds very hard. I think when I, I've met the founders of these different companies, and so when I, with the dairy, making casein or whey, it sounds, <laughs> sounded so much easier, you know, and it, it may not be easier, but to me it sounded easier. And the same with egg whites, it sounded easier. There are about 80 proteins in an egg, so then they had to figure out, well, which are the ones that we most want? But it's kind of exciting because they can find one that foams better or that... Um, gels better or that um, is purifies easier and they can really target it in a different way than you can when you just take the egg from the chicken. Um, so that, you know, it, it's, um, it's a paradox that I'm both fascinated and repelled by it. Um, yeah. So let's talk about, um, well, I know Julie quickly mentioned protein from air. So this is kind of like one of the newer things on yep. the on the horizon, which is Seriously. <laughs> there's yeah. So there's a few companies that are basically trying to capture CO2 from the air. CO2 is one of the emissions that we don't want in the air. CO2 comes from electric of the electrical grid. So vertical farms or cultured meat are all going to be using the grid. So is our internet, so is our phones. Um, and CO2 is actually harder, takes longer to dissipate from the environment, unlike uh, methane, which actually dissipates quicker, and methane is the cows are the biggest emitters of methane. Um, so anyway, so there's companies trying to basically capture the CO2 from the air, which does seem sort of like a magic trick. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a company in the South Bay that's doing it initially. They're they're doing a pilot with Chevron this year, so they'll basically take it directly from one of their coal plants and 
funnel it into some kind of again it's a bioreactor which everyone's sort of dependent upon these like similar technologies and then it will they have these enzymes proprietary that they won't talk about that are going to turn the co2 and other hydrogen and oxygen inputs into eventually um, a material that's gaseous that they'll dry and they're going to make it into a fish food um, which is i think kind of a i'm kind of open to this because uh, right now we're feeding aqua aqua farming is the majority of the fish we buy but we're feeding it fish from the ocean which is overfished and also has some other problems um so we've got um th this protein that they're going to make and turn it into fish food but there are other companies that are doing this called air protein and it shouldn't be in quotes but air protein and they're making meat out of it to eat um there's a berkeley company who have tell me that they've made a chicken which I'm not sure, but that's what they say. Um, but it's, uh, you know, unless it's renewable energy, then the energy that they're using to make the meat that they're saving is also, is it, it's, it, it negates itself because it's not good because they're using, they're still dependent. So if, it's, if, if we were all renewable, then maybe this idea might have some traction. Um, there's a company in Iceland that is doing it from renewable, from hydropower. So may make sense. Um, but there are uh, lots of inputs to think about that these are dependent upon. And it's hard because I think the founders of a lot of these companies are like, we're saving the world. We're better for the planet. We're better for you. Um, and then other people will say, if we don't have a planet, then what's the point? So we have to save the planet first. Um, so it's it's like, it's almost like, like this election yesterday where you had to make a choice and you didn't really want to make a choice. <laughs> um, you weren't happy with the choices you had. Yeah, I was also I wanted to say, I mean, I want I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but one of the issues is because these technologies are proprietary, um, they're not transparent and we don't have a way of evaluating. I mean, I know there's it's possible to do life cycle, cycle analysis on some of this. And I think there's been some LCA studies on on cellular meat and it's unclear that they come out as being more beneficial but it's it's very hard when these things are under wraps of patents or or pending patents to even know how to assess the technologies in terms of their environmental impact yeah so i yeah. The, i i read one study which said that um cultured meat because it was dependent upon and the energy in the grid um initially it would be better they said than and they only compared it to beef to farming cattle so initially they said culture meat would be better but because it was co2 dependent which i said takes longer to dissipate from the air from the um the atmosphere um because it takes longer it's not it eventually the curve changes and the cows are better than raising animals for food is better than cultured meat um but this this was you know a, a set, small set of uh you know researchers sort of like looking at sort of what ifs because we don't have all the inputs that we might want to have for some to, to ask these kind of questions um yeah so we haven't talked julie has such a great background in farming so i think we it would be great to spend some time talking about vertical vertical farming and um yeah there's there's kind of two approaches to farming that is, is coming from the sector and they're really quite different one is vertical farming or, or indoor farming and the other one is a lot of technologies that are more like precision farming. They're augmenting farmers already existing tools. And those are really different avenues because vertical farming is is really displacing existing farmers because the people who are starting up indoor agriculture places are rarely existing farmers. They're techies. and Oh, they're very techie. Yeah, techies <laughs> and, and happening in cities <clears throat> under the idea that we don't have enough arable land, so we have to farm upwards. Um, and as opposed to the, the, a huge slew of technologies that are designed to support existing farmers, um, I, I call, I'm calling it precision farming, but whether it's different visualization tools for their farms. Um, so you mean they, like technology to get the tractor to plant, like not it, like a driverless tractor, that or a like, driverless tractor, or 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 a a technology that allows them to see what's in the field, see where the hot spots are, so they only have to treat a certain amount of the field, or to measure their how much water's in a field. So the idea here is that you can use fewer resources if you have more precision about what the field needs. Um, so the critiques, there's lots of critiques of this. One is that is that it actually undercuts farmer knowledge, and farmers are are 
do have knowledge and they pride themselves on their knowledge and we need that sort of knowledge. Um, I really, those are really two different kind of approaches, but I'll just get, stay on the farmer one for a minute because I think this is, it's, this is what, one of the things that first got me interested in the sector when I was up, I was actually in, in Boston listening to um, a talk that had Indigo Agriculture, which is one of the, the big, big companies now. They had a huge, huge valuation. And, and but several people on this panel were talking about how they're going to make farmers more profitable. And I'm like, how are they going to make farmers pro profitable? Because there's two things that have made farmers perennially unprofitable. One is overproduction. They produce way too much, not too little. And so there's always a glut and therefore their prices are low. Um, and so many of these technologies are geared toward yet again, increasing their productivity. And then the second reason farmers are unprofitable is because they buy shit from these companies because the, the values in the technologies that are sold, not in actual farming. And so farmers over the last hundred or so years have become more and more doing the stuff that's the, le the most risky and then buy things from everybody else. So I'm fascinated by this model of being able to make farmers profitable while these companies also have to be profitable to be because they're funded by venture capital. So I don't see how that's going to happen. Yeah, right. You're not seeing farmers in Iowa with $100 million in investment to get their peas off the ground, right? Yeah, well, so the vertical is, I think, really different. But I mean, the, the farmers, I mean, there are the people who are working in ag tech are really aware that farmers aren't going to jump on everything. They know how much it costs to buy a new gadget, and they only are going to buy gadgets that they think are actually going to help them. Um, so, but the what's interesting about the ag tech, it's actually the there's the most movement there because it it's much more built on practicalities mm -hmm. because they have to be in conversation with farmers. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's interesting about the ag tech is that a lot of these are are about um, using data collected from farmers, and but this is presumption that farmers are want to give up their data. They don't. No. Why would they want to give up their data? I mean, anybody who's been on Facebook now for knows about what it means to give up your data. Huh. So like they so so farmers wouldn't want to tell me like what what variety or what what fertilizers they used or what what maybe how much they, they grew do, maybe they don't but why mm. but why but they're going to give it up to a company who's going to then sell it back to them mm -hmm. um, when you know farmers do pride themselves on the knowledge they have on their fields yeah I mean so yeah. I've been yeah. I've been going to these vertical farms and yeah. they're just as secretive right so um, I I talked in depth to there's one in the just near the airport called Plenty. And there's one that I talked to that's very large um, and they're about to um, embark on a Los Angeles location, uh, building a Los, a Los Angeles location. And then in New Jersey, there's one called, um, sorry, Aero Farms. And they're equally big and Aero Farms just announced their new second location. And um, they mostly, I'd say 95% of what they grow is leafy greens, gourmet greens, fancy microgreens, you know, arugula, kale, but the kale isn't, doesn't look like the kale, you know, it's really delicate. It's like a slip of kale. It's like, um, they want it to be snackable. They want their greens to be, they want us to eat like it so much that it's just yummy and delicious and we eat it all the time. But, um, that kale is definitely not the lacinato kale that I buy in wrinkly, heavy, girthy kale. Um, they're very different. So it's an entire, to me, it's an entirely different universe of plants that they're creating. Um, and they are, have, they have hundreds of, hundreds of millions of dollars of investment that they have to pay back, but they're just selling greens, but they also don't want to tell you too much. So like both companies are about to, to launch strawberry or they're starting to grow strawberries and tomatoes. Strawberries have to be pollinated. Um, you know, that means that bees have to be involved or robots that are going to pollinate the strawberries, right? Just think about how expensive that is. Strawberry, I'm sorry. Just think Stra of, strawberries aren't pollinated. They're hybrids. Um, well, they, this, at that plenty they were going to... That, I mean, I, that's strange to me because they're, yeah. they're hybrids. They all come from... They're all grown Well, out. he wouldn't tell me what, yeah, yeah. what well, the that variety could, that he's using, yeah, but he yeah. said it was the best tasting variety that he'd ever Yeah, had. no, that, that, I think he was misinforming you. But I will... I mean... It, to, strawberry production is really interesting because that's one of the things that first made me be like, okay, maybe there's something to this because one of the things about strawberry production is it's kind of the, the worst sort of farm work there is. I mean, people are, are bent over all day long and picking at rocket speeds. I mean, it's really, really poor working conditions. 
And you want human hands, right? So if they bring, well, yeah. if they're going to well, grow strawberries indoors, they're not going to want human hands well, picking the strawberries. Well, but the promise at first was we would raise them up into trays. So, and so this is what's actually happening in California strawberry production because they're dealing with this soil disease I've been telling you about. So, so it's actually like, just imagine there's the land. It's beautiful. It's in Oxnard. It's in, you know, it's off the one. It's, you know, you drive down there and it's gorgeous and you stop at the little farm stands. And instead of strawberries growing in, in rows in the earth, there are metal trays at waist high to one, not use the soil and two, not have to have the workers lean over. And, and Driscoll's, everybody knows this brand, is they're doing these pilots. Right. And they're doing it because of the pressure of the soil disease more than the Oh, more than the employee? More than the employee thing. I mean, they they, they get to talk about it as being... But the other important thing about Driscoll's is they don't farm. They have farmer farmer co-op, like, yeah, they hire farmers. They they contract a farmer. So Driscoll's is only experimenting. Mm -hmm. But the... the conversation is, is this is going to be better for workers and the and the strawberry workers are leaving with strawberries to go to raspberries because you can pick standing up. But then at the same time, they're developing robotics for strawberry production as well. Right. Yeah. Which is, yeah, it speaks to. And, and one of the things that Plenty told me was the reason why they're in California, because, you know, when you think about where vertical farms are needed, I think about Manhattan, I think about Chicago, I think about urban cities. Um, you know, I met like an indoor tomato grower in Chicago, which made sense. That's great. Yeah. Grow tomatoes in the winter in Chicago indoors. That makes perfect sense. Um, but to grow in California, which is where what's like 80 percent of our food comes from California or fresh, not, fresh well, 80, 80, 80 percent of our strawberries, 90 percent of our strawberries come from California. Right. So <laughs> they said they said they wanted to be where the best was from. And then their, their next location is going to be Los Angeles, which, again, is has no problems getting food and has no problems getting food to them fast. Right. So usually with agriculture, um, ag- the land is cheaper than vertical until you add transportation. So in California, we don't have that problem. Right. We're all close to where the crops are coming from. But if you take those strawberries and you send it to New York, then you lose the the, the economies of that dirt is cheaper than vertical farms. So if vertical farms, but it's the scale that it, I wonder about, which is that these companies feel like they need like 100,000 square foot, you know, kind of building to grow lots, millions of crops. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And so the question is about whether you want to have landscapes of strawberries or, or CAFOs, or you want to have landscapes of, of indoor farms and, and bioreactors. <clears throat> um, that all depend on transportation, that unless all it's on, like I mean, small yeah. and local. The, the, uh, one really important point about the vertical farming is it does, I mean, one of the advantages of it is to move the farm closer to where urban markets are. And so that's another way in which existing farmers are very skeptical of indoor farming. And particularly, uh, that was true of California strawberry growers. They were, they were like, they just there while there is experimentation going up in this in this waste high strawberry farming many are skeptical because they're the competitive advantage of strawberry growing in california is the temperate climate and this and to some degree the soils that allow them to grow nine months of the year and so why would anybody once you're going indoors why would you ever grow strawberries on the expense of california land but existing farmers lease that land and that's that's all they got right and it is worth pointing out, yeah. which is that um, these vertical farmer, these vertical farms, which are run by high tech people with like very, very high tech business people. And the farmers that you do that are with the organization are usually sort of out there working on the actual plants. But they don't they don't see themselves as putting farmers out of business. They're 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 to them. They're compliments to them. Um, our land is taxed. Our soil is um, not healthy. It's you know lost its nutrients. It's like by vibrancy and they're just an additional component the my dispute is just that these farms aren't based aren't being built where they're most needed um so if they're building them in california to me that's like you're competing with like it doesn't these like it doesn't make sense <clears throat> i mean because the biggest problem of california agriculture is a high or one of the big problems is high land values so why they're putting indoor yeah. farms on prime land. Now, I did hear that one of the ones that's out in Santa Maria, which is Santa Barbara County, is um, it's on it for it's not on good land mm. because it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, right. So um, w- one of the topics in my book is about algae, which can be grown in like brackish water. It can be grown in um, 
in bad in places that we can't grow food. To me, like what I want to see is the money invested in ways to complement the areas that our food system isn't already succeeding at. And that's I'm not sure that that's what's happened yet, because like you said in the beginning, which is that um, technology is what sort of led us to where we are and we're using technology to like combat the problems that technology brought about. Right. Um, a little bit of circular reasoning. Um, so I know there's something we wanted to talk about with vertical farming in terms of the battles around organics. Yes. Yes. Right. Because so, um, sorry. Oh, yeah. Well, well, I was just going to point out, what, which is that um, vertical farms are growing in uh, potting medium. So it's not soil. Um, one of the things that we're just have barely tapped is what's the interplay between the biome of uh, soil and the plant roots and our own microbiome. And only if there's there isn't a lot of uh, hard data on this, but we know it's important. Um, and so in vertical farms are growing in meat potty medium and it's um, sterile. It's you know, they want to see it's pure. It's the cleanest. There's you know no pesticides. And so there's all these selling points for them. But I, I also want to point out that um, we think that there's a really key piece to growing in soil and the, bio, the biome of both the soil and ourselves. Um, and organic is about soil. Um, but I'm going to let Julie like and tell us more about the yeah. organic and soil piece. Yeah, I mean, you know, the organic standards have been hardly fought for many, many years now, several decades. And um, and they one of the big fights right now is around hydroponics, is around soilless systems, because um, for the kind of the old guard organic farmers, the organic farming was a, a philosophy of the soil, that if you believe if you treat the soil well, you 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 get healthier plants, health, healthier for the plants themselves and healthier for people. But because of all these kind of fights over organics and how consumers have taken them up, organics have come to mean to the public often is grown without pesticides. And so those who are doing hydroponic farming or indoor farming where they're using these contained environments that can keep pests out maybe, hopefully, you're saying, well, this is very much in keeping with organic philosophy because it's grown without pesticides. And, and, and some of these indoor farms don't use pesticides. You have to have a really contained environment. It's still really risky if you get one kind of disease in. Yeah. But so, so there's, it's a big thing. And so at first hydroponics weren't, were such as, were such small potatoes, the organic farming community wasn't contesting them, but now it's one of the biggest fights around the national organic standards board. Yeah, and then yeah. we don't know, like, um, if the vertical farms can, can can be considered organic or if they start to use, if they're sort of fighting against, like, if, if they say they want to complement the system, then they shouldn't fight against it. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that, so vertical farms, because they can use their lights differently, because the lights can be used, you know, 24-7. I mean, they're not used that much, but they are used a, a great deal of the time. And they can tune the spectrum to exactly what the plants need. And, and they can even, the plants can em emit, they emit data they emit like what their needs are. And so one of one of these companies is actually has sensors to um, to dial in the lights to what the plant is telling it it needs. And it, it's pretty cool. I mean, it's pretty fascinating because the she had the lights made by a music, a concert promote a concert company that makes lights for lighting for concerts because they wanted to be able to turn on and off uh, the spectrum at the drop of like a like a drum hit, you know. Um, and so she she has these like really like alert lighting systems that are like for um, concert concert quality lighting systems. But because the plants grow so fast with these lights, with these inputs, like extra fertilizers, extra lights, more than like an inconsistent sun outside, um, they say that the bacteria is that the pests can't can't don't have enough time to grow. So but to me, that's like you know, a little bit of hubris to be, to say that like nothing's going to happen because this is like a built environment where anything can happen. You know, there've been recalls on cereal on cereals, just, you know, corn and wheat and sugar. And that's made in a built environment. They call these warehouses, these manufacturing plants, the built environment and, um, you know, food safety people are, there isn't a, a lot of knowledge about them. So it is something to think about because all of these new foods will be made inside. Right. There's an aspiration for purity, not contamination, and yeah, and and organic systems are all about like the 
organicisms are all about, you know, the bug on the piece of corn shows it's just organic or, you know, mm -hmm. the, or the, the corn that has eaten into it shows it's organic. It's not something you want to, to, um, yeah. And, and it sort of speaks to like, um, I, I felt like we had been getting transparency in our system. We had the slow food movement. We had farm to table and it's all like really exciting and passionate. We have artisan foods, gourmet foods. We have, you know, people, foodies really passionate about their, their, um, where their foods are from. And, um, organic was about, you know, the soil and the dirt and where it grew. And, you know, there's like, you know, even just farm to table alone. Um, and, and then now we're sort of the pendulum is swinging to science. And, you know, I'm curious how it will play out. I'm curious if there's a room for both science and, you know, sort of the romance of the farm. Well, organic farmers would tell you they're very scientific. Yeah. I mean, they, oh, they yeah. do. I mean, of course, they, they use all sorts of science. They mm -hmm. use a different, maybe a more integrated science, but organic techniques, I mean, maybe some of them have been you know, handed down, but a lot of them are, are built on agroecology. They do all sorts of scientific experiments to figure out how to how to manage systems. So, it's just it's a science that doesn't aspire for for purity. It's a science that it, it's, that it recognizes that integration and, and ecological integration is going to make for a healthier environment. Yeah, interesting. And there, and then of course there's a range of how organic is practiced. So, I mean, I don't want to I yeah. don't want to make put any blanket statements on organic. Wide range of practices that go under the name of organic. Yeah. So let's hop to talking about um, how these companies are positioning themselves, their products to attract customers. Yeah. So it's a really interesting question because um, there's this concern that these products won't be welcomed. And a lot of it has to, it's the specter of GMOs. <laughs> I can see this one person who's saying they're not welcome here. <laughs> But there is a specter of GMOs that, that they, you know, when they first came up with genetically engineered crops that they that they were rolled out for the most cynical uses, including, you know, Roundup Ready varieties that you're you're coming up with a, a technique that that requires you to use a seed that goes with glyphosate that's really toxic. And so and so. Th that and all the stuff with Franken foods and there's, so, you know, there was the public just so rejected GMOs. And so the the sector is really trying to be in front of that and trying to figure out how they can be more welcoming, how or how they can make their their products more welcomed by the public. But there's a kind of different a couple different moves they do. One is like, well, we just need to educate people about how this these are just equivalents, but they're not equivalents. I mean, they're only equivalent if you understand meat as like a set of molecules that are protein but if we understand meat is coming from an animal that that eats grass maybe or probably or corn i mean depends on the animal but that but that metabolizes and creates amino acids of this kind then it's something quite different and so one of the ways in which they want to gain public acceptance is to say that these things are completely equivalent but they're only equivalent on a molecular level not on a holistic level and if they're not even equivalent on a molecular level actually so there's that. So on the one hand, they want to say, they want to educate the public, then they feel that if there's a more educated public, the public will be more accepting. On the other hand, these things are highly non-transparent and they also want to fake people out and to say, hey, you know, this we're going to make this burger taste just and smell like, bleed like, look like, touch like a burger. Um, and that's going to make the public like it because they like their burgers. <laughs> yeah, right. It is it is a bit of a, like a shell game, right? Yeah. So it's like burger for burger. Yeah. Um uh, it, like you know, if you talk to the vegans and the vegetarians they're like I don't I don't need the burger. I don't want the burger, but that's not their market. Their market are is meat eaters, which is an interesting way. Um one one thing to think note is that a lot of these companies use farms as their logo in their presentations. They use, you know, red the red barn, they use the corn um the corn silo they yeah. use, like Memphis meats is like Memphis is, you know, famous for barbecue. Yeah. Um, so the, the things that they tap are very um, interesting because yeah. they are leaning on farms. Right. And they even talk about um, trying to, to take the Petri dish and like the eyedropper and like try to they like want to stop using those types of imagery. Um, but certainly like and especially with vertical farms, if you go to their websites, it's, it's all about cleaner, healthier, better for the planet. and we are also passionate about that. We 
we do want that. And so it's like they're sort of setting us up to be conflicted, you know, right? You're going to start having to make these like guilt-based judgment calls, um, you know, whether or not eating plant-based, it makes you it makes you healthier or whether plant-based is like good for the environment or like lessens your carbon footprint. Um, like it's like Google buying their carbon offsets so that they can be carbon zero. Um, you know, how do we, how do we feel about that? Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking about the websites. One of the things that you see a lot in the websites are really, they're really well worth looking at um, because it's always about simplicity. Like they say, oh, we have a simple process. And, they, and what, it's particularly interesting with the plant-based um, foods because they say, we're just leaving out the middle cow. <laughs> we're like plants to people and like as if there's nothing in between or, they'll, or you'll see a diagram, like a six step process. And so that it's, they're selling simplicity and yet it's all under proprietary wraps. So which is it, right? So. Um, it's um, but that's one of the ways in which they're trying to portray it to the public is this is just kind of a simple process that allows you to access and get your burger in a, another form that somehow tastes just like a meat burger, even though it's completely not. Yeah. I mean, it's like plants as miracle ingredients. Yeah. And I think I think I want like, you know, it'd be, it'd be interesting if there was a company that was like, um, we're going to give you something different. Like, we're not going to try to match your your steak and we're not going right. to try to match your right. um you know your beef tacos. We're gonna we're gonna do something different. Um, this there's a this uh, writer has a book called Meat Planet uh, Ben Wargaft, and he said that he would occasionally ask founders like, well, why not hamster? Why not why not make hamster? Yeah. It's delicious. <laughs> and I really I appreciate that because yeah. yeah, it's like why why do we have to ma match? That's where I think like there's such innovation and such such great ideas and such talent and such minds, but then. They they lean on the what we know and they lean on what we know because if they if they show us a burger and it looks like a burger we'll be more accepting of it and so it's good to think about this like uh, this um, how they're sort of the marketing um, that they're sort of playing with uh, make it familiar and then make you, then you're comfortable with it. So we've talked about a lot of things that worry us, but not all of them. <laughs> Are there things that worry you about? Worry you about where this is going? Um, yeah, so I mentioned in the beginning that I have type 1 diabetes and I've I've tried out different diets to sort of improve improve my health and to help me manage it easier, which is that I don't want to think about I want to think about it less often. So, I think we we all think about food all the time mostly. Um and and in my in my search of thinking about food less, I have discovered that eating Whole foods was simpler than eating processed foods. And um, what I'm worried about is that a lot of our food is turning to processed more than we need, more than we need. And un unfortunately, it's like because the companies are thinking about the, the 9 billion by 2050, that's that's who they're looking for. Right. So they're so we've got this. There's this idea of personalized nutrition, but these companies aren't that's not for them. They're, these companies are like, how can we scale? How can we hit 9 billion? How can we feed 9 billion? So if they're looking at 9 billion, it's processed food. But to me, that's that's concerning because then they've lost the the fact that we each have unique nutrition need, nutritional needs. Well, the, the fact that they keep on talking about feeding the 9 billion is exactly what worries me because it, it assumes that the, it, it says that they have a really poor understanding of what the problem is with the food system. I mean, again, we've trying to this kind of Neil Malthusian concern of like we need to produce more to feed the planet doesn't doesn't it just doesn't tell you why people are food insecure, which is always about distribution, which is always about politics, which is rarely rarely about not having enough food, except for cases of extreme famine, which are generally political crises more than ecological crises. So my concern, I mean, I do think I, I'm willing to imagine that there are, are some of these technologies that could do beneficial things like ones that, you know, like I'd be interested in technologies that use like, um, you know, microbiome things to to re, to to produce more fertility in the soil or, or, or reduce pesticides or whatever. I'm, I'm good with that. I'm, I'm curious to know what they come up with. But I'm so worried that most of what's driving this is what's profitable rather than or what could be profitable or what sells to venture capital rather than what's needed. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
I know that one investor that I've talked to talks about the the food investment, <clears throat> the food investment scene as being, he, he talks about it as pre-Beyond Meat IPO and post-Beyond Meat IPO. Um, I, Beyond Meat had the like second biggest IPO in the last decade and it, it makes plant-based burgers. And before it, uh, a lot of investors were looking at cultured meat as if like, nah, this is pure science fiction. This is not possible. And then after Beyond Meat went public, they were like, totally possible, we're in. Um, and Beyond Meat just closed in January an over $100 million uh, funding raise. And it just shows you that, and then, and then all the big companies are getting into it, right? So Cargill, Tyson, Nestle, they're all backing it or they're making their own, um, which I'm still suspicious, even though these companies are, these big companies are trying to shed some of their bad decisions in the past. I don't, I'm not, I don't trust them. Um, I think, uh, we, we all have to take care of our, just like we do in medicine, you have to be your own best advocate. I think in food, you have to be your own best advocate. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the whole mantra from Silicon Valley of disruption, you know, but what are they disrupting? But, you know, the idea is to undermine incumbent companies, but this is not happening with this. I mean, five years ago, that didn't seem to be the case, but now there's all sorts of interest and investment by the major big food companies. Now there's still a question of whether they're investing because they want to get in on it or if they want to squash it, you know, squash the competition that we don't know yet. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, I mean, McDonald's needs, needs scale. It's to such a size, like in Canada, they're trying out beyond Meat. in Europe. They're using Nestle. Um, they're using and and another company for their they call it their PLT their plant lettuce tomato burger, which is like ri- kind of ridiculous. Um, I have a f- couple of stats which are interesting about funding, which is that um, food tech the, uh, ha- in 2008 it had 60 million in investment, and in 2019 it had 17 billion. Um, I mean that's million to 17 billion, um, which is vastly amazing. And then um, unique investments have doubled from uh, 2015 to 2017. It went from 223 to 460. Um, I think that I just I wish I wish some of some of the attention was on food policy and um, food insecurity. I wish some of this investment was going to traditional methods. So regenerative farming, um, carb. There is a little bit of investment in regenerative, which is interesting, too, that there's some big capitals also interested in regenerative agriculture, which is a whole nother question is yeah. how is how is regenerative agriculture going to be profitable enough for these companies to make a, a killing? Yeah. Again, farming is not particularly profitable. Yeah, but so <laughs> I have noticed that um, soil is starting to get a little sexy. And so like food waste used to be super ignored and is finally kind of very exciting um, upcycling, taking the, the uh, waste stream from an, one company and using it to make products from another company. Like this is a really big thing. And most most of the big companies really want to get into the tapping their um, waste streams to do this. Um, and I think that... Um, soil is finally getting to that moment where it's also becoming sexy, which would be exciting. Um, I think. So what do you think it's going to look oh, like yeah, in 10 years? What's it going to look like in 10 years? I think we're going to have a really complicated hybrid system. I think we're going to have cultured meat. I think we're going to have in and not not widespread. I don't think cultured meat is going to be everywhere in every safe way, every, you know, every single safe way. Um, but I think we're going to have a little cultured meat. We're definitely going to have more and more plant based analogs. And we're going to have traditional. I think uh, it's going to be difficult because I think the the cost different different differential is going to be like, unfortunately, right? If you're if you have if you're well off, you can afford the gourmet greens, you can afford the the regenerative farmed beef and lamb, and you know, um, people who aren't are going to get the Impossible Whopper at Burger King. Um, but I think it's going to be a hybrid that we're going to see. And like the dairy aisle that you see now, which has everything under the sun in it, um, you're going to have to look at labels really carefully to see what you're buying. I recently bought a coconut yogurt thinking it was coconut based and it wasn't. Um, and I made that mistake and I'm like, oh, how could I make that mistake? Um, so it's, I think it's going to be a complex hybrid system. So, you know, there's this thing soylent you know, which is liquefied. It's not the stuff like Soylent Green where it was people that you were drinking, but it's, you know, it's some sort of nutritional drink, I guess. And the word on the street is the only people that drink it are techies themselves at their desks as well. And fitness people. 
and like weight as well as people who want to experiment to see how it tastes which allegedly is really bad and it makes them sick so um so i don't think that there's a lot of tech a lot of these products that i don't think are going to get much traction at all because Food is pleasure. I mean, why why drink Soylent your death? I mean, I look forward to my meals. Food is pleasure. So I think there's some kind of absence of the understanding of the pleasure of food in this. But in terms of what I think the food system is going to look like in 10 years, I think it's going to, you know, I think the big things that are driving the food system we have now, which is one that's highly bifurcated between like the kind of lovely, aesthetic, organic, local, farm to table, whatever for the privileged and kind of processed cheapened food for just about everybody else. I don't think that the political economic dynamics that drive that have are going to change anytime soon, particularly with the election we're looking at right now. So for me, it's like really kind of the, the bigger political problems or political economic tensions that drive what we eat aren't going to change. So yes, there, I think there will be interest in this stuff. There'll be niche markets for it. You're, I think you're probably right that plant-based burgers will will take off in a way that like, you know, Boca burgers did not, maybe. But I don't think it fundamentally transforms our food system. Mm -hmm. Thank mm -hmm. you so much. Thank you, everybody. It was Thank so you. great to have you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DeMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs.